You're listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We'll be joined by experts who will help us understand current issues and resources available to those diagnosed with blood cancer. Holidays and, you know, those things are, are, mean so much more now than they did prior to cancer entering our lives. This may potentially be a cure for some patients. We'll also be speaking with patients and caregivers who will share their cancer journey with us to better understand life after diagnosis and let you know you're not alone. Beforehand, my job was to earn a living for my family. My wife said to me, your job now is to live. And that's what I'm doing. I'm living my life the way I want to live it. And I'm really enjoying it. It's a much more fulfilling life. Everything that I knew, I didn't know anymore. Like defense mode. We're survivors. Like but they're probably not the questions that you want answered. So, you know, writing them down for us is important because of our chemo brain. Let's get started. Welcome to the Bloodline with LLF. I'm Alicia. And I'm Lizette. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Today, we will be speaking with Dr. Mark Bronstein, a board-certified hematologist, medical oncologist, with a focus on the care of adults with hematologic malignancies, particularly multiple myeloma. Dr. Bronstein completed his fellowship at NYU Langone Medical Center and then joined the Division of Oncology Hematology at NYU Winthrop in July 2017 working to enhance the autologous stem cell transplant program and further develop the innovative clinical trials program that provides their patients with unique and novel therapies. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Bronstein. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yes. So before we jump in about the topic of myeloma, what brought you to the field of oncology or hematology? Yeah, that's a great question because, you know, we're currently interviewing medical students and residents for enrollment in our training programs, and it's really fascinating to read their applications and their stories, and I think each one of us comes with a a personal story. For me, much like many of my colleagues, my interest in medicine started with a true passion for science and also for working with people. And while I was in college, uh, I had a close family member that was also going through treatment for cancer. And I have a brother who also was pursuing training in radiation oncology. And although I don't come from a family of all all doctors, these kind of different areas of my life kind of came together and really drew me towards medicine. And I felt that oncology in particular focused all of my interests and passions in one place where I could really interact with people at a critical point in their lives when they're very vulnerable, when they're going through a lot of stress about a new diagnosis or a serious condition, and just merging the science and the research and the patient care really uh, came together, I felt, uh, in, in a career in oncology. Interesting. So my great aunt, she was diagnosed with myeloma uh, about three years ago, and it was one of those diseases where it was confusing to her because it was a matter of, it's in my bone, but it's really blood, and it's hard to wrap your head around as a patient when you get that diagnosis and you're trying to understand exactly what's going on in your body. What is myeloma for the patient and caregiver listening? Sure, and thank you, Alicia, for sharing your personal story. It can be confusing for patients. Multiple myeloma is a type of blood cancer, but it tends not to occur in the circulating blood, but more so in the bone marrow. 
where there are cells called plasma cells, and these cells are normally helpful cells in the body. They help produce antibodies, which are proteins that help us fight infections. But in multiple myeloma, these cells have become abnormal, and they home back to the bone marrow where they grow in a supportive environment. So everything that has to do with the consequences of the disease really stems from the fact that there are these abnormal plasma cells growing in the bone marrow and invading the bone that uh, surrounds the bone marrow. So it's not really a bone cancer per se, but really a cancer of cells that exist inside of the the bone marrow, which is an organ in and of itself whose normal function is to produce all the blood cells that circulate in our blood. Yeah, we've had a lot of people call our information resource center and speak to an information specialist and preface their conversation with, I have bone cancer. And, And when we delve deeper, it's really that it's multiple myeloma. So there is that confusion a lot of times, especially since there's so much bone pain associated with myeloma. Yeah, absolutely. And even the name of the disease stems from the fact that it it was identified by the finding of these bone or what we call lytic lesions scattered throughout the skeleton. And each of those areas is a site where these abnormal plasma cells are growing into and invading into the bone. So the name of disease itself stems from the fact that it's a disease that invades the bone, but not a cancer of the cells that make up bone. And for those listening, we definitely want you to check out our other episodes that we recorded with Dr. Raquel Shelton, who speaks about the actual diagnosis of myeloma. We go into great depth about that as well. But for this episode, we really want to talk to Dr. Bronstein about the other topics that patients are discussing and the conversations and questions that they have. And one of those is, you know, we all know that the relationship with your doctor is very important, especially when it comes to a hematologist or oncologist. Since this is the team that a patient needs to feel comfortable and confident that, you know, they're diligently and intelligently working to save their life. So for the myeloma patient or caregiver of that patient who is listening, how should they choose their hematologist? Yeah, that's a great question, Alicia, and and really a a crucial one because there's uh, so much information that uh, is discussed with the new diagnosis of any cancer. And as a patient, I think one has to be really comfortable that the person treating you at at such an important juncture of your life really has your your best interests in mind, really takes the time to explain things to you as the patient and your family to make you feel like you're getting the best possible care anywhere in the world and that they are coming up with a treatment plan that takes into account all of the things involved in your life in addition to the disease, you know, what your needs are, uh, if you're working, do we have to work around your work schedule? And so I think that's the first thing is taking into account all of the patient needs. And then specifically for multiple myeloma, I think that as a patient, you want to be treated by an oncologist that really lives and breathes myeloma, that really has a focus on this condition and is comfortable dealing with the nuances of the treatment and the treatment side effects, as well as has... um, Uh, access to or performs um, him or herself uh, autologous stem cell transplantation. So ultimately, the key thing is being comfortable with the individual that's treating you and their team, since oftentimes we work in a team with with many other uh, clinicians who work behind the scenes to take care of our patients. But it's ultimately about having a relationship and then going into more detail about how that person is going to treat you and what their level of expertise is. 
And isn't it more important nowadays, especially with the past, I would even say it's, it's like five to 10 years where there's so many new treatments available now for myeloma that patients and caregivers seek out somebody well-versed in myeloma just because the field has been changing so much. Yes, Lizette, you make an excellent point. The field has changed tremendously since I started doing research uh, almost 20 years ago. And at that time, we really didn't have as much targeted therapy as we do now. And in the past uh, two decades, we've seen more than 10 new FDA-approved medications to treat these diseases and even more combinations of those agents. So it's a challenge even to keep up with the latest literature because so many new studies are coming out in combination of these agents. And so it really is necessary to work with an oncologist who has a firm grasp on all the data and all the steps involved in treating myeloma in such a complex ecosystem of uh, treatment paradigms. Yeah. And going back to when you were speaking about a patient, you know, needing to feel comfortable, I guess it's a, it's a challenging situation because I know for me and my family, when my, so my great aunt has myeloma, but my grandmother actually passed away from kidney cancer. And it was one of those things where you've never had to be in this type of setting before. So you're introduced to this new environment. And even though you might not feel comfortable, you hear cancer and you want to start treatment and feel as if you're doing as much as you can. But I think you bring up a great point where you have the time to feel comfortable with your healthcare team so that you feel that you're in the right hands. I agree. And also, you know, Leukemia and Lymphoma Society offers a number of brochures to help educate patients. I often uh, advise my patients to go and seek those out and to do their homework. Uh, and when they've come back and read it, I give them an A+. Because, um, uh, it, it really is valuable information written very carefully and very helpfully to patients um, in a way they can understand. And, and I feel like once they read that information at, at a reliable site like LLS, they can come back to me with much more uh, sophisticated questions and, and things that often take more time for them to understand. So educating patients is really the first step before we talk about anything about treatment options or, or anything else. It's really making sure that uh, we both have a firm understanding of each other and of the disease and that I've conveyed that information in a way that the patient and their family members and, fr and relatives uh, really, really understand. Definitely. Something that Alicia said was a lot of times you're not used to being part of a discussion with, you know, taking care of a family member that has cancer. And once you hear the word cancer, you do want to start treatment right away. You want to, you know, fight. And I think one of the things with myeloma is we do get a lot of inquiries about smoldering myeloma and people wanting to start treatment right away. And I know that the field might be changing a little bit, but I know that, you know, watch and wait or watch and worry may be a treatment protocol for smoldering myeloma. That's right. And, you know, I try to explain to my patients that multiple myeloma in general is more of a marathon than a sprint. And that can be difficult for patients who have a lot of anxiety about treatment and, and want to move everything so quickly. And while we may be able to start treatment quickly, the overall pace of the disease is oftentimes uh, long and punctuated by periods of relapse and remission. Now, the precursors to multiple myeloma, including something called MGUS and smoldering myeloma, which you mentioned, Lizette, have historically just been 
uh, monitored and we haven't treated these patients. However, now more and more we're looking at the smoldering group since they have about a 10 uh, times higher risk of progressing to multiple myeloma than patients with MGUS. We're, we're looking at this group and thinking more and more about intervening earlier to even try to cure the disease before it advances to multiple myeloma. Now, that doesn't mean that the standard currently is to treat all patients with smoldering myeloma, but there are certain subgroups of patients who have smoldering myeloma who can be categorized as having a higher risk of progression to symptomatic multiple myeloma, and those patients could be considered for earlier intervention, ideally in the context of a clinical trial. Yeah, it keeps changing this field, which is great because there's so many different treatment options now available for myeloma patients that weren't available before. And like you said, more targeted developments, more targeted medications, treatments that might have less side effects associated with them. Exactly, and that's really the key thing. With targeted therapy, which basically means that it's specific for that particular cancer, so drugs that are specific for multiple myeloma, um, that really go out and seek out the pathophysiology of the myeloma and, and its weaknesses. Not only are those drugs more effective, but they're also better tolerated. And as such, patients have uh, fewer side effects than they would with more traditional cytotoxic chemotherapy that tends not to distinguish as well the healthy cells from the myeloma cells. And so because these drugs are more well tolerated, we can begin to think about moving them into the smoldering myeloma setting where patients can still have a good quality of life, but also have the benefit possibly of prolonging the duration at which they would otherwise progress to symptomatic myeloma. Doctor, jumping back to the information that you shared regarding how important it is for patients to approach their doctors having done research and going to credible organizations to receive that information. And for those listening, you can actually visit www.lls.org forward slash booklets where you can download or you can order our publications free of charge. Something that happened for me is we would walk into appointments with my grandmother and we would, you know, leave sometimes thinking, did we ask that question or should we have asked that question? And along with our publications at LLS, we also created a list of printable question guides so people can download and print these questions for them to, you know, just remember to ask these questions with their healthcare team. What questions should be asked upon diagnosis for a myeloma patient? Sure, Alicia. You bring up a good point, and I often encourage patients to keep uh, sort of like a diary or, or a list of running questions that may pop into their head in the middle of the night. But So the questions uh, you want to ask with a new diagnosis of myeloma are really questions that are uh, unique to that particular patient. So first off, how is the diagnosis made? Are you sure that this is the correct diagnosis? So you want to review with your doctor what the bone marrow biopsy showed, you know, how and, and what criteria were used to document this patient as having symptomatic myeloma as opposed to some of the precursor conditions we spoke about. And then you want to dive a little bit deeper into the results of the bone marrow. What were the genetic changes in those abnormal plasma cells? Because that information helps stage patients and also helps predict their response to treatment. And then you want to talk about the staging. So there are three stages, one, two, and three. The higher the stage, the shorter the survival. And you want to speak about 
treatment options and what treatment options would best suit that particular individual and the biology of their myeloma and what supportive measures they may need, for example, to support their bone health, exercise, nutrition, all those things that patients actually often ask me about because they want to feel like they have some control over the process as well, and and typically they can do that with diet and exercise. So it's a long visit, and there's a lot to unpack in that first visit talking about the diagnosis and the treatment options, but I think having those uh, question uh, lists from LLS is really helpful. That way you don't miss the, the really important questions. Yeah, and Alicia also developed a myeloma calendar, which is really especially important nowadays with a lot of the oral medications that are available for myeloma and the adherence issues that come along with taking an oral medication and just to remember. So doctor, as you're saying, journaling, just to help because a lot of times with these newer medications, the onus is on you to take them if you're going to take them at home, which is great that you're able to take the medication at home. But at the same time, some people feel like, oh my gosh, I have to remember. So people do get a little bit taken back sometimes that they're the ones that have to remember to take this medication and to take it the way that it's prescribed, which sometimes could be difficult. That is true. I mean, I think it's one of the advances in the treatment of multiple myeloma that many of the uh, novel agents are oral. In fact, in the recent uh, few years, we've seen entirely oral uh, three-drug regimens. So I think more and more patients are going to have the availability of oral regimens that they can take for the most part at home. And so when I see a new patient, I work with a navigator who's a nurse that kind of helps uh, make sure everything is going according to plan with our patients and nothing falls through the cracks. And that person will be with me on the first visit where we talk about treatment options and she'll have a calendar to really go through and reinforce what I spoke about. And then our infusion nurses will also review that calendar with the patient. But, you know, we treat uh, patients who are typically more elderly. I mean, the median age for diagnosis of myeloma is the late 60s, although it can affect people much younger than that. But in general, it's a disease of older individuals, and in some cases, patients who are at the extreme of aging. And so we obviously tailor our therapy uh, for individual patients, but patients who may have some baseline dementia or other compliance issues, making it difficult for them to adhere to the treatment schedule. Those patients, we have to tailor the therapy as well and, and oftentimes reinforce the treatment, enlist their family members or other relatives, sometimes have a visiting nurse, and also call them at punctuated points throughout their treatment to make sure that they're taking their medications appropriately. That's good to provide that follow-up, right, Alicia? That's important. Yeah, yeah. We had one doctor, I think, tell us that, Lizette, I don't, I don't know if you remember this, but one doctor said a patient came in and said, you know, these drugs are expensive. She made her own schedule based on the fact that she wanted the medication to last. And it's one of those things where you have to educate the patient and let them know exactly how important this is for their survival. Sure, Alicia. And, you know, this goes back to one of the first things we were talking about, about having that relationship with the patient that they feel comfortable coming to you with things like financial issues or compliance issues or any other uh, adverse effect of the treatment schedule and the treatment regimen. Oftentimes our patients may have financial concerns. You know, these are, these are patients who 
maybe in in the retirement phase of their life and have a limited income or not have insurance that doesn't cover some of these oral regimens. And so this is an important conversation that has to be had. And and a lot of times I find patients are timid about bringing up issues. Sometimes they just don't want to say that they're having a side effect because they feel it might affect their treatment. Or sometimes they feel awkward about talking about financial issues. But quite the contrary, we try to foster an open space where patients should not only feel comfortable, but really need to, to let us know about these things so we can help them rather than having uh, these issues um, sort of go under the rug and, and not come out and uh, adversely affecting their response to the treatment. Right. Although multiple myeloma is classified as a blood cancer, patients with this disease often experience bone-related symptoms too. And this includes bone pain, frequent fractures, lots of low bone density or bone damage that can show up during skeletal scans. How does multiple myeloma affect bone health, and what can myeloma patients do to build or maintain healthy bones? Yeah, good question. So one of the diagnostic criteria for multiple myeloma involves having um, these lytic bone lesions in which the, the myeloma kind of invades into the bone. And about 60 to 70 patients uh, will have at least one area of, of lytic lesions on diagnosis. So the co-management of myeloma involves treating the plasma cells that are abnormal, but also helping to support the bone function. And there's two ways that we generally go about that. One is prevention. So if a patient has a large lytic lesion or one in the spine, and that fractures, that could lead to a pathologic fracture and severe disability. So we aim to prevent uh, these events from happening by giving them supportive medications to help prevent any skeletal events. So that can include giving patients calcium and vitamin D, which seems a little bit counterintuitive for myeloma since it can present with high calcium. But oftentimes the body still needs vitamin D and calcium to support the healthy parts of the bone. The second part is that we'll typically give patients monthly injections of medications called bisphosphonates. And these are medications that also help support bone strengthening cells. And there's also literature to suggest that they work synergistically with the treatment directed at the myeloma itself. Now, if a patient presents with a fracture or a painful lytic lesion, then we move on to secondary prevention, prevent that uh, lesion from, from getting worse or causing more disability. And that can involve things such as radiation, which is a focal therapy that's generally well tolerated and can help uh, refurbish the bone. Or if it's an area typically in the spine that's caused a compression fracture, we may work with a orthopedic surgeon or an interventional radiologist to do something called vertebroplasty or kyphoplasty, which is sort of like injecting cement into the bone and, and giving it more structural support. So these are things that we have, uh, conversations that we have with every patient, regardless of whether they have a lytic lesion at diagnosis, and is really important because having bone disease and myeloma can be sometimes painful and really lead to decreased quality of life, and we try to prevent skeletal-related events. Absolutely. And for most myeloma patients, they'll receive maintenance therapy as part of their treatment plan. And 
I was reading uh, data that showed that maintenance therapy can extend progression-free survival and overall survival after initial treatments, which can include a variety of drug combinations or stem cell transplant. I guess my first question is, what is maintenance? That's a good question because, as I said before, with targeted medications, they tend to be so well tolerated that we can now even consider continuing them. So maintenance therapy is essentially continuous therapy that typically at a lower dose from the initial treatment dose. And the way I sometimes explain it to patients is that if you had high blood pressure and you were prescribed a blood pressure medication, you, you wouldn't necessarily stop the blood pressure medication, even if the blood pressure was suddenly controlled. So in specifically in multiple myeloma, though, this is a disease that's considered to be incurable, but highly treatable, like a chronic disease. And so the idea behind maintenance therapy is to give a lower uh, dose of targeted therapy to try to keep some surveillance of the disease and to try to keep it under control before it would otherwise progress. If there are any residual myeloma cells lurking around, the maintenance therapy would prevent those cells from growing the myeloma back. So this has now essentially become the standard of care, particularly in patients who have undergone autologous stem cell transplant. We will give patients typically either an immunomodulator like lenalidomide or a proteasome inhibitor like bortezomib as maintenance therapy. And this has been shown not only to prolong progression-free survival, but also overall survival when they grouped all the data together. So it's essentially become standard of care. So in the past, when someone was in remission, they would stop treatment for a while, and then when the myeloma returned, they would begin treatment again? That's correct. So it's worth noting up front that not every patient may be a candidate for maintenance therapy if they didn't tolerate certain medications. And it is okay to sometimes monitor patients off therapy because we have plenty of other agents in the arsenal that can suppress the disease should it relapse. But Typically, all patients will go on some form of maintenance therapy because um, it has been shown to prolong the duration at which the disease is kept under control. And so speaking about therapies, we, and I, you probably get this too, Dr. Bronstein, but I know that we get calls about CAR-T cell therapy. Sure. And, you know, you hear about clinical trials, you hear about CAR-T, you hear about it being used, you know, for a myeloma patient. How and when should a patient explore a clinical trial when it comes to myeloma? Yeah, that's a great question, Alicia, because clinical trials have many benefits. Not only do they advance the science that serves as the foundation for new treatment regimens, but specifically in multiple myeloma, many of the clinical trials testing new agents or new combinations of established agents have been highly successful. And often the experimental arm that contains the the new agent or the new combination outpaces the uh, control arm, which may be the standard. So there's always a good time to consider a clinical trial. With the current armamentarium of, of antimyeloma drugs, it's typically not required up front for the treatment of myeloma, but can be considered. Many of the clinical trials for myeloma explore treatment in patients who have uh, failed their initial therapy or have uh, relapsed refractory disease. CAR T cells is one area that appears to be proving very successful in the treatment of highly refractory myeloma patients who would otherwise have had no additional options and a very low likelihood of remission with the available agents. 
So CAR T-cells, it's a biological therapy that involves harvesting a patient's T-cells and then sort of reprogramming them so that when they're reinfused, they go back and uh, use the immune system to kill the myeloma cells. So that is not currently FDA-approved for myeloma, but it is for other blood uh, cancers such as non-Hodgkin lymphoma. But I think this therapy is imminently going to be FDA-approved in the future. But right now, it's really conducted in the context of clinical trials, typically at larger academic centers that have the infrastructure to support this technology and this therapy. But I think one of the questions on the list, like we were talking about in the beginning, to ask your oncologist is, you know, do you think I'm a candidate for a clinical trial now, and why, and you know, how do I search for them? How do we work together to find a clinical trial for me? Because there's really never a bad time to, to enroll in a clinical trial. Are there any other clinical trials going on right now for myeloma that you're excited about besides CAR-T? Sure. I'm, I'm certainly excited about the CAR-T cells because there's a lot of creativity that can be had with that technology for targeting different elements of, of the myeloma cell. I'm excited to see some of the oral agents that have been used as part of the um, initial treatment being used as maintenance therapy. I'm also excited about some of the newer monoclonal antibodies, which already have proven to be highly successful. And uh, we're actually going to be opening up an arm of an international clinical trial using one of the monoclonal antibodies, uh, daratumumab, in the upfront setting. So I'm excited to see how that plays out in terms of achieving deeper remissions when using these monoclonal antibodies that, that are already approved in the relapse setting, but bringing them into the um, initial treatment setting. So there's a lot of activity going on now in, in monoclonal antibodies as well, different targets, conjugated antibodies, where not only do you deliver the antibody to target the myeloma, but you also focally deliver chemotherapy to the myeloma cell. So I think we're going to continue to see many new FDA-approved medications for myeloma, and it's really a truly exciting time to be uh, involved in the field. It is. It's great. I do want to make a quick plug, though, for some research we are doing. It's it's a non-interventional study, but we're looking at the gut microbiome, which are sort of the passenger bacteria and organisms that live with us, which hasn't really previously been explored much in multiple myeloma, but we're trying to look at whether this is abnormal since multiple myeloma is a disease of the immune system, and the immune system is intimately involved in our gut flora interactions, and we're looking to see if there's anything abnormal in multiple myeloma patients compared to healthy volunteers and MGUS and smoldering myeloma patients, and whether that has any relevance to the disease pathogenesis and progression. Wow. Yeah, we're very interested to see how that develops. Yeah, so so am I. It should be interesting. We might have to get you back on an episode, Dr. Bronstein. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. I'm happy. I'm happy to help. This sounds very similar to the Dana-Farber new trial that's coming up, and it's for healthy patients that are either African-American or the the first generation of a myeloma patient, and they're going to see what other things may be predictive of who's going to get myeloma. Right. So there are a number of repository studies where they're banking samples from patients at various points along the disease because one of the issues we have in the field is that we don't have very good predictive markers to tell when a patient may progress from MGUS to smoldering or smoldering to myeloma or MGUS to myeloma. Um, We can subcategorize those people into higher risk categories, but we still don't know when they're going to tip the scale towards symptomatic myeloma. So 
there's a lot of research looking for markers and indicators of what really leads patients to progress along that spectrum to uh, symptomatic myeloma. Yeah, it's interesting. We always get that question. I have MGUS. I have smoldering. Why can't we stop it before it turns into, you know, multiple myeloma? Uh, we always get that. Sure. And also, I always get asked, you know, what caused this? Mm -hmm. What caused me to develop this? And sometimes there may be an association. For example, in living in New York, you know, we have patients who are 9-11 first responders, and there is a documented association between that exposure and MGUS. But many times we don't know the cause. And really, the etiology of, of multiple myeloma, for the large part, remains unknown. So there's a lot of smart uh, scientists and clinicians working together to try to figure that out. Yes, we thank you all. Yes. Thank you all very much. I'm grateful too, yeah. Doctor, so we know that multiple myeloma is the most common hematologic malignancy in African Americans with twice the incidence of Caucasians. And I'm curious to know, with my great aunt living in Jamaica and being diagnosed with myeloma, is there any research or studies being done looking at those patients from the Caribbean diagnosed with myeloma? Sure. That's a great question, Lisa. And I was going to ask, because you mentioned your African-American background, but specifically in the Caribbean population, these patients also seem to have a higher risk of myeloma. In uh, graduate school and medical school, I worked in an area in Brooklyn that had a high prevalence of patients coming from the Caribbean. And so we noted that, that these patients seem to have a rate of multiple myeloma that was out of proportion to what would be expected. So there is research going on to try to categorize these patients based on their country of origin. There are other diseases that are known to have a predilection for sort of uh, equatorial countries. And so although the, the reason is not clear, there are groups that are banking samples from patients specifically from the Caribbean, many of which live in Brooklyn, in New York, in order to see why this particular population seems to be at higher risk for multiple myeloma. Right. Well, like Lizette said, we're so thankful for yourself and for others in the field that are doing so much work to help to get answers to these questions and, of course, treatment to these patients. So thank you so much for all you do. Thank you. And thank you to the LLS for all the work they do to help our patients. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society would like to inform you of PROMISE, a research study to identify, screen, and track individuals at high risk of developing multiple myeloma. The goal of this study is to increase early detection in order to develop new therapies that prevent disease progression and improve survival. To learn more about this study as well as how you can join, call 617-582-8544 or visit www.promise.org. PromiseStudy.org. Thanks for listening to The Bloodline with LLS. We can be found on iTunes and other great podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.thebloodline.org. Be sure to check out our archive section on our website for previous podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. Until next time.